Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back the great Dr. Marshner. Thank you, thank you, Sabatino. I want to begin tonight, back in a year which some of us old-timers remember, 1950. I was too young to know it, but that year, Pope Pius XII put out his most important encyclical. It was called Humani Generis. Okay? It was a, an analysis and attack on a whole field of recent theological mistakes. And the liberals in the church have been running from that encyclical ever since. Indeed, it was the original purpose of Vatican II in the mind of Pope, um, uh, um, Pope John XXIII. It was his original purpose to have a council that would back up with conciliar authority the main teachings in Humani Generis. And I know that because I've got the original documents that were prepared for the council. Well, a funny thing happened between the Pope's plan and the result. Never mind all that. Thing is, it was 1950, and I want to read to you a little sentence or two from this wonderful encyclical. Neither is there any lack of people who contend that the doctrine of transubstantiation, since it's based on an antiquated philosophical notion of substance, is to be amended in such a way that the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is reduced to some sort of symbolism inasmuch as the consecrated species are nothing but efficacious signs of the spiritual presence of Christ and his intimate union with the faithful members of the mystical body. Period. Unquote. Okay? There it is. A prophecy of the false doctrine about the Eucharist that would explode in the aftermath of the council. Right? It's too bad that the original documents for the Council were not promulgated. However, they were not long coming into play because Paul VI, in practically his first encyclical, had to go back to this and reject the theory that says, well, what's going on in the Eucharist is a change of meaning. Transsignification? <laughs> change of meaning? No, 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 no. Change of symbolism? No, 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 no change of the underlying reality. So the topic we're dealing with is one of continuing contemporary interest because we are just now recovering in this country from perhaps a generation and a half, two generations of laity who were systematically eh, kept in the dark about the real doctrine of transubstantiation. <clears throat> I said last week, and, uh, it, but, but it was said ironically by a Lutheran pastor, that the idea of transubstantiation was already obvious in the catechesis of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 330 AD. So this is not a dispute about a medieval system, and it can hardly be based on any outdated notion of substance because Aristotle's notion of substance was nowhere around in the church in 330 A.D. Now, between the day of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, meh, 330 A.D., and the outbreak of the Reformation, say 1530, 
1,200 years went by, right? In all that time, there were only two, count them, two writers in the church who denied transubstantiation. 1,300 years, only two dissenters. The first came in the middle of that era, around the year 1000, and the second came near the end of that era in 14.5 uh, thereabouts. The first dissenter was named Berengar, Berenger, Berenger of Tours. And the second one, a little bit more familiar in English history, the second one was a chap named Wycliffe, who founded the sect called the Lollards. Those are the dissenters for 1,200 years. Now I come down to the medieval efflorescence of this pre-medieval doctrine. The word transubstantiation itself was anticipated by Faustus of Ritz, who spoke of transformation in Christi substantiam. The bread of the Eucharist is transmuted into the substance of Christ, in Christi substantia, Faustus of Ritz. A further step was taken in the year 1079, when a Roman synod condemned Berenger and obliged him to admit that the bread and wine were, quote, substantially converted, quote, unquote. The fancy new word itself appeared in magisterial documents as early as 1202 in a letter of Pope uh, Innocent III. And then it appeared in a, in a decree of the Fourth Lateran Council, which met in the year 1215. Transubstantiatis pane in corpus et vino in sanguinem, dot, dot, dot. Well, it's an ablative absolute. The bread and the wine having been transubstantiated into the body and blood. And then at the Second Council of Lyon, we had a great event of ecumenical significance. A brief, alas, brief reunification between the Eastern and Western Church. The Byzantine Emperor Michael Paleologus was himself in attendance at the Second Council of Lyon, and he subscribed to a formula saying, Panis vere transubstantiator in corpus et vinum in sanguinem. The bread is truly substantiated into the body and the wine into the blood. The Emperor Michael Paleologus. Now, I'm going to divide my discussion into several brief uh, parts. One about the mere fact of transubstantiation. The next about uh, uh, the how of it. And then some more. As for the fact, transubstantiation of the bread into the body of Christ was merely affirmed by early scholastic theologians like William of Auvergne. He said, the heavenly and life-giving bread comes down upon the altar. There's no longer natural and visible bread there. Only its accidents, its appearances remain. William of Auvergne. Alexander of Hales, H-A-L-E-S, was a pupil of William's, and he made conversion of bread into the body of Christ the effect of the words of consecration, and affirmed that after those words have been said, nil remanet preter accidentia, there's nothing left of the bread but its superficial appearances. And in those days already, this change was being called transubstantiation. Now I get to the biggies of the Middle Ages. Albert the Great, uh, St. Bonaventure, and St. Thomas. They all spoke the way the fathers did, whom I quoted last week. They based their faith in the fact of transubstantiation on the very words of institution. This is my body. This is my blood. The words this, namely this thing you see, 
is my body, would not be true if the substance of the bread remained in the sacrament after they'd been spoken over the matter. If the substance of the bread remained, one would rather have to say, this bread is my body. The doctrine of the persistence of the bread with the true body of Christ after consecration is thus, said Aquinas, said Albert the Great, said Bonaventure, hum heretical. Because it contradicts the truth of Scripture, where we find those words of institution. Only the accidents remain. The substantial form of the bread itself does not remain. Richard of Middleton admits transubstantiation with these earlier theologians. He says, I accept this opinion. Quia hoc sacratissime fidei Christiani concordat. This agrees with the most holy Christian faith. And it agrees, sacre scripture, with holy scripture. And it agrees with the sententiae ecclesiae the opinion of the church, the judgment of the church. Now, the next biggie in the list we usually make of the biggies of the Middle Ages is Duns Scotus. Duns Scotus toyed, toyed, I say, with a different idea called annihilation, but he didn't adopt it. Rather, he admitted transubstantiation like the earlier doctors. Well, how is annihilation different? Well, annihilation just says that by the power of God, the bread just goes poof. It's annihilated. And then somehow or other, for some reason or other, the body of Christ comes into its place. Okay, That's called annihilation doctrine. Scotus played with it, didn't agree with it in the end. However, he did attack St. Thomas and the Fathers opinion on the significance of the words of institution. He said, those words taken in themselves alone do not prove a conversion. Jesus could have pronounced them even if he wanted to allow bread and wine to subsist. Well, if that's true, Duns, my friend, how do you, what, what do you base your faith in transubstantiation upon? And he said, well, church tradition, and especially the church's authority. In other words, you didn't think you could get it directly from scripture, but you certainly get it from the tradition of the church. Last week we saw a number of quotations that would reinforce that judgment at least. After Scotus' time came the nominalists in the 14th and the 15th century. They took up for their own use for their own discussion, St. Thomas's, um, uh, I'm sorry, Scotus's attack on Aquinas's scripture argument, but they didn't deny transubstantiation. Even the nominalists did not deny it. I'm talking here about Durandus of St. Porcin, Occam, Peter of Ailly. They thought it couldn't be proved by the authority of the Bible, nor exactly by reason, but, as Occam said, we admit it propter determinationem ecclesiae, because of the judgment of the church settling the matter. And Peter of Ailly added that it was the common opinion of the holy doctors. It was even the common opinion of Gabriel Beale who had the misfortune to become Luther's teacher. Not that he ever knew it, but his book that he wrote became Luther's textbook. The only theology textbook that Luther ever read. All right. So all right, everybody agrees on the fact. Now then, is this alleged fact logically possible? That was the next question the scholastics took up. St. Thomas argued the matter out briefly in the third part of the Soma Question 75, Article 4. He says, conversion of the substance of bread and wine into the body of Christ is not like natural conversions. It is entirely supernatural. It's produced by God's power alone, like the virginal conception of Jesus. 
A created agent, says Aquinas, can only act upon something by changing a form in it, changing its form in some way, changing a superficial form, changing a deep form. One created thing can only act upon another by changing a form. Thus, every natural conversion of one thing into another occurs on the level of form. But God, whose active power is infinite, can not only make different forms succeed one another in the same subject, but can also change the whole substance of one being into that of another. And this is what he does in the sacrament of the altar. If you want to see the whole spate of St. Thomas's arguments against those who say this doctrine is impossible, you want to take up his book against the Gentiles, Summa Quanta Gentiles, uh, book four, chapters 62 to 68. He deals with every alleged impossibility. Now let's go say some more about the nature of transubstantiation. All right, we all believe the fact, yeah, 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 it's logically possible. What's its nature exactly? Alexander of Hales compared it to the incarnation and to creation. In the incarnation, look, there's no movement. No movement. The person of the word remains unmoved and changeless. He just takes on the human nature without himself undergoing any change. The change is in the human nature he is assumed to have taken on. In creation, there's no unmoving or permanent element. There's just the production of a total substance ex nihilo, from nothing. Okay? God spoke and things existed. Pop up from nothing. The total substance of them. In transfer, transubstantiation, there is something like change. Yeah. But there's no common subject as there was in the incarnation. The common subject was our Lord's divinity. It remained while he took on the humanity. Um, there's no common subject in creation. But in transubstantiation, the accidents which remain separated from the substance of bread are preserved miraculously and are miraculously given the power to act upon our senses and to nourish our bodies. This is a change, said Alexander of Hales. The point of departure for the change is the terminus a quo, the point of departure from which the change comes. And that is the substance of bread and wine. The terminal point of the change is the terminus ad quem, and that, he says, is our Lord's glorified body and blood. The substance of the bread and wine are thus not annihilated. Transubstanti transubstantiation is only like creation in that it happens instantaneously. The substance of the elements is converted into something better, in melius. And without succession. In other words, there's no process of change stretching over time that the bread goes through to become the body of Christ. It's instantaneous, without succession. By the way, when does this instantaneous change happen? All the medievals agreed. As soon as the words of consecration are finished. Pronounce the last syllable and bingo. It has happened. Okay. Now, St. Bonaventure was a student of Alexander of Hales, and he compared transubstantiation also to the creation and the virginal conception. St. Bonaventure made a careful study of the different kinds of change of one thing into another. 
And he sees here a genuine total conversion, the accidents alone remaining. This is not annihilation, but a case of mutatio in remeliorum, change into something better. Which happens in instanti et non successive, happens instantly and not successively. So transubstantiation is a conversion of the whole substance, matter, and form of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Nevertheless, if the matter itself of the bread and wine is changed, one still has no need to bother about change of prime matter or something like that. So again, this is not a physical process. It's not as though what God is working on starts out as matter fully specified as bread with this and that chemical composition. And then God chemically breaks it down until it's no definite substance anymore and there's nothing left of it but uh, potentiality to be something else, materia prima, and then God builds it up. No, no. It's not like that. It's instantaneous and um, there's no need to worry about prime matter and that stuff. Albert the Great followed this common teaching. The conversion is total. It happens subito, I love that word, right away. Instantaneously, subito. Et non successive. It's neither natural nor miraculous, says Albert. It's just admirable. Why isn't it miraculous? Because your eye doesn't catch anything to marvel at. Just admirable. It does not come about by augmentation, nor by annihilation, but by transubstantiation, says Albert the Great. All right. We come now to the biggie of the biggie, St. Thomas. St. Thomas explained the manner of transubstantiation more clearly by making a more rigorous application of Aristotle's doctrine of matter and form. Okay? Christ's presence in the sacrament, he says, is not a result of local motion, as if the glorified body of Christ left heaven, where it remains, left there to be on this altar and many altars at once, not at all. This is not local motion. Um, rather, it's the result of a real conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Christ. <coughs> the substance is not resolved into prime matter. It's not annihilated. It's changed not by a change of form, but by a substantial change. Only the accidents remain. Neither the matter nor the substantial form of bread or wine remains. And this happens at the moment of consecration. Aquinas says, look, transubstantiation resembles creation and natural change, but also differs from them. All three have in common a succession of one point after another, one terminus after another. Transubstantiation resembles creation because in neither of them is there a common subject. Okay? It's not as though God, when he creates, kind of gives the fish eye to chaos and says, okay, chaos, you're going to shape up. I'm going to tell you what to do. As though there were this common element called chaos that was first chaotic and then became something definite. No, 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 no. That's not creation ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing means what it says. The whole substance is created at once out of nothing. Aquinas goes on. Transubstantiation resembles natural transformation in two points at least in some respects. In each of them, one state turns into another. 
but it happens different ways in the two cases. In this sacrament, the whole substance of the bread passes into the whole body of Christ. But in natural changes, the matter of the one just receives the form of the other once the prior form has been laid aside. All right, they also agree, transubstantiation and natural change agree in this, that something remains to the two sides of the change. There's something that produces that has a constancy to it, but in different ways. In a natural change, what remains is the same matter or subject. But in the sacrament of the altar, nothing remains except the same appearances, the same accidents. And as a result of this, there are some things that sound right, but you can't say them. So listen up. You may not say, the bread is the body of Christ. Because in that sentence, it's an identity statement, this is that. You need <laughs> subject and predicate that coexist. The bread is not there when the body of Christ is there. You see? So you can't say this bread is the body of Christ. It isn't so. They're not together in time. Uh, you can say the body of Christ comes from the bread, says Aquinas. That's right. Expone fit corpus Christi. The body of Christ comes from the bread. That's right. Is made from the bread. That's true. But you may not say. The body of Christ comes to be from bread. Corpus fit. In panis fit, corpus Christi. Nor can you say the bread will be the body of Christ. Because that way of talking would supply, would require a common subject. Okay. The bread to stay there and become something else. Not so. That doesn't happen. And after all, the body of Christ that we receive in the Eucharist was not made from bread. It replaces bread. What looks like but used to be there. But the body of our Lord isn't made from bread. What do you think this is, a kitchen? Nevertheless, since the accidents remain after the conversion, you can say these things if you add in a sort of a way, if you nuance it enough. Make it vague enough, you can get away with saying these things. But be careful. And in general, what you have to do when you say bread, do not mean the substance of bread, but just mean what in general is contained under bread's appearances. All right. Finally, Aquinas says transubstantiation is a substantial conversion. If it's a conversion, there has to be a stable element, which would be the seat and foundation, substrate for the change. The stable element is not prime matter, nor is it the accidents which persist miraculously. Well, at this point, Aquinas says, what remains constant through the whole process is just what it takes to be a being. Okay? God, the author of being, converts what there is of being in one nature into what there is of being in another nature, taking away that through which the one was different from the other. Okay? In other words, what remains constant? as the bread is replaced with the body of Christ, is just what it takes to be a being. Okay? 
And I want to say more about that later on because I want to pick up a very clever idea introduced briefly by a buddy of mine named John of Paris. Sorry I didn't know him well, but he died in 1406. All right, the later Scotists and nominalists saw merit in the theory of annihilation. They explained transubstantiation after the fashion of arrival, of an arrival or an introduction. Okay? The bread, the substance doesn't change in anything else. It goes, it's just annihilated. And God brings in there, <coughs> adduces, induces the new substance of our Lord. Permodum adductionis was their word. Okay. By the coming of the body and blood of Christ to the place where the substance of the bread and wine had been. In other words, transubstantiation is not a productive action on God's part, but um, an introductive one, an adductive one. Huh? And you can read all of those details in William of Ockham. I know you're just going to rush out and do that. At this point, we have covered all the background. We need to understand the controversies that were left open at the end of the Middle Ages. And they were basically three in number. And they concern, number one, the disappearance of the terminus a quo, the starting point, the substance of the bread. And then the appearance of the terminus ad quem, the arrival of the body of Christ. And then the question of any sort of link between them that makes the disappearance of the one and the arrival of the other opposite ends of the same process. Okay? As I said already, St. Thomas affirmed that the substance of the bread is not annihilated, but changed into the body of Christ while Scotus hesitated on the matter. Scotus's pupils joined the nominalists in affirming flat-out annihilation. All right, what is this all about? St. Thomas did teach, after all, that the substance of the bread and that of the wine do not remain after the consecration. All right, they disappear. All right, so come on. What's the big difference between disappearance and annihilation? with me? Aquinas, oddly enough, has an answer. <laughs> he says, look, annihilation implies that nothing replaces the substance which has disappeared. In our case, if the bread and wine are destroyed and disappear, it is for a reason. It is to make way for the body of Christ. And the relation between the disappearance of one substance and the appearance of another, when the disappearance is for the sake of the appearance, justifies the dogmatic idea of conversion, conversio, change. In other words, the bread doesn't just appear, doesn't just disappear. It appears for the sake of what is to replace it. So there's a purpose re purposive relation here. The appearance, the coming there of the terminus ad quem, once you reject annihilation, almost all the scholastics of the 13th century saw no alternative but to affirm the elements conversion into the whole substance of the preexistent Christ. And of course that conversion didn't add anything to Christ. So what did it do to him? Well, physically speaking, nothing. The substance of the bread is converted into the whole substance of the body of Christ. Doesn't that mean Christ gets some, oh, I don't know, extra being juice, extra fermentation of being out of this? 
And the answer is no. All that the change does is give him an extrinsic trait, namely presence under these sacramental appearances. All right. I don't need to tell you what happened during the Reformation. As is usual, the Reformation was a giant step backward. Okay. Calvin reinvented a doctrine that had not been heard since 1000 AD. Berengar, Berenger, an unheard of and ridiculous doctrine. Namely, oh, the scriptures just mean that um, hey, this bread now stands for my body. It represents my body. Uh -huh. So there's no, no, no real change, just a change of what it means. Huh? Thank you, Calvin. By the way, in case you're interested, Calvin, very bright man, but utterly uneducated theologically. He had never read a word of Aquinas. He never read a word of uh, the, uh, the, the um, uh, book of the sentences by Peter Lombard, the medieval, standard medieval textbook. He never read a word of it. The only ancient work he ever read was a couple of books by St. Augustine, mostly on grace and freedom. You cannot make important theology with that limited a theological education. I mean, heck. I mean, I can make a great revolution, to, revolution too, if all I need to do is know nothing about it. Harumph. So never mind the so-called great reformers. They were backward bumpkins. The next important development is due to St. Robert Bellarmine. All right. St. Robert Bellarmine was one of our greatest doctors in the Counter-Reformation period. The Reformation had been raging on for a number of decades, and then St. Robert came along and wrote this fabulous multi-volume book called The De Controversies, on or about the controversies. That's not the end of the title. The title goes on for half a foot. But that's the beginning of The De Controversies by St. Robert Bellarmine. By the way, I have been preaching this to my students at the college for years. Every time I find out that one of those kids knows some Latin, I say, what are you waiting for? We're living in a Protestant country. The definitive answers to all the Protestant ideas were given to us in 1580 by St. Robert Bellarmine. But they're in Latin. <coughs> when are you going to put them into English? <coughs> I don't need to ask why the English clergy never did it. They had Henry VIII to worry about. And there's no, no use asking why the Irish never did it. They were being starved to death. So it never got done. The job never got done. And I found out last year, no surprise, St. Robert Bellarmine has never even been translated into Italian. Unbelievable. There he is. 15 volumes long in Latin. And the Latin is easy. Okay? This is not like trying to read Caesar. It's easy. <coughs> well, I got to know some things, but, you know, it's not bad stuff. So I tell my students, come on, come on, come on, come on. Make some progress. Do something. You don't have to do it all. Do 15 pages and eventually we'll get the job done. During and after the storm of the Reformation, St. Robert Bellarmine proposed a new theory, which he called adduction. He said, look, the body of Christ exists already, but it didn't exist under the appearances of the bread and wine. It exists there only after the words of consecration. So the adduction means that the body of Christ, which was existing only in heaven, now exists under the appearances of bread and wine. So far, we can't really 
deny any of that. And he said, aha, it's not there by simple coexistence. As though the bread stayed there and now this came. I talked about last, that last week. I called Luther's theory of the Eucharist the buttered bread theory. Bread stays there but gets buttered with the unction of divinity. <laughs> no, I can't be right, says St. Robert. Rather, there has to be, between the body of Christ and the accidents of the bread that are there, um, a union. The body of Christ, with those accidents, even though the bread accidents do not inhere in the body of Christ. Okay? And Bellarmine's theory had many important writers after Trent. Toledus, Gregory of Valencia, Vazquez, Sylvester Maurus, that great, wonderful Benedictine. Ah, they're heavyweight writers. And, uh, you know, I like what they have. I like St. Robert. So I like what these guys had to say, up to a point. But um, there's a weakness. They have to explain what exact relation the body of our Lord has to the appearances of bread if the appearances of bread are not accidents inhering in the body of our Lord. So the normal relation between a substance and an accident is that the accident inheres in the substance. Inherence, that's, yeah. Yes. The accident of whiteness inheres in my jacket until it needs to be cleaned, laundered. It's inherence. If the, if the appearances of bread don't inhere in the body of Christ, eh, what exactly is this union you're talking about? His successors didn't have a very good answer either. The one I liked best was, oh, I'll tell you what it is. Immediate contact. Oh. Conjunctio prima. Sounds better in Latin, doesn't it? <laughs> right. St. Robert Bellarmine's idea was rejected by Suarez. S-U-A-R-E-Z. Now, this was not a Latin American dictator, Suarez. This was the great Jesuit at the end of the 1600s. No, end of the 1500s, early 1600s. Um, he was a Jesuit, an early Jesuit and became known as the rich doctor, Dr. Eximius, because he just put, puts out this rich progression of prose. His stuff goes on forever. Anyway, he said, no, 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 no. Adduction is the wrong idea. What we've got going on here is a reproduction. Say what? Say what? He says, look, God's creative action terminates at the substantial being of a created thing. His conservative action terminates at that being of a substance that's already there. So his conservative action just continues his created action, makes it continue. It terminates a substantial being already present. Terminates at a substantial being already present. As regards the body of Christ, the action called transubstantiation is none other, none other than God's conservative action. He maintains, God maintains the body of Christ there under the sacramental appearances. And that same substantial being pre-exists in heaven. So the substantial being is reproduced, so to speak. Well, like Xeroxing. 
The original is in heaven. And the divine conservative action sort of puts a copy of it under these accidents of bread and wine. Reproductive theory by Suarez. And then he says a very mysterious thing. He says this reproductive action does not result in any multiplication of our Lord. Oh, wait a minute, that's not bad. If our Lord's body in heaven is the original, and what's under the sacramental appearances are just copies of it, the body doesn't get multiplied, only the copies get multiplied. It's the same body, present under many different appearances, different altars, and so on and so on. Yeah, okay. So one and the same body is multiply reproduced. It really sounds like a mimeograph machine to me. But anyway, that's, that's Suarez, who was no slouch. Now, the theories of Bellarmine and Suarez had lots of prominent defenders, including even some Dominicans, until a funny thing happened in 1920. There was a cardinal named Billot, Louis Billot, B-I-L-L-O-T, remember this name, Louis Cardinal Billot, wrote a book on the Eucharist in which he tore these guys up limb from tree and proved to the satisfaction of almost all readers that this was just this abduction and stuff, and not an abduction, just nonsense. There's nothing to do but go back to the original terminology of the fathers and St. Thomas. Louis Cardinal Beale. He's a hero of mine. Not because of this particular act, though I like that too. But he's a hero of mine for another reason. And I'm not going to tell you what it was, because it... <laughs> has to do with ferocious right-wing politics. <laughs> ah. Now what is this link then? That's the third thing that we got, we got the point of departure, which is the substance of the bread and wine. We got the point of arrival, the, the, new, the new substance. What links them together? All right. Vasquez said, well, it's nothing to it really. The words of consecration do it because if they're true, they mean that the bread disappears to make way for the body. Thank you, Vasquez. De Lugo thought the link was the ongoing role of being <coughs> the substance or subject. The body of Christ plays the role which the bread substance had been playing towards the surviving appearances. Gregory of Valencia called this new role conjunctio prima. I repeat what I said before. Conjunctio huatza? What is this when, how can the bread be playing, how, how can the body be playing the same role as the bread played when the accidents don't inhere in the body but did inhere in the bread? How can that be the same role? Now then, Bellarmine gave it up. He said the link is the will of God. That's it. No fool, that Robert Bellarmine. <laughs> there is, I think, a richer answer in St. Thomas and in his young disciple, um, John of Paris. By the way, John of Paris is another hero of mine for reasons unrelated to this. What does it take for a being to be a being? Don't tell me, well, it's got to be in some way. Whatever is in some way uh, is a being in some way, and that's all it takes. If that's all it takes, then there's nothing but an analogy between one being and another or one kind of being in another. In order to have the same kind of being in view, you gotta have more than just being a being. You gotta have 
being a being in its own right, standing on its own as a being. We have a word for that in Latin. It's subsistentia. And we even have a word for this in English, sort of. You probably haven't heard this word either. It's being a value of a first-order vari variable in a first-order theory. <coughs> Give me a break. What are you talking about? What do we mean by a thing? In the primary sense of the word thing, something that's there in its own right, that stands, not something that's inseparable from something else, but something that stands there in its own right. The whiteness in my jacket is not a being in this sense. Because it has no existence apart from the jacket. It's got to be in the jacket. Or it just gone. So whiteness does not subsist anywhere. Most accidents don't subsist anywhere. Okay? I used the example one time of a man who tries to satisfy the Christmas wishes of his wife. She says, honey, all I want for Christmas is some green. Oh, says the husband, how oh, you mean a new green blouse? No, just green. A green skirt? No, it's just green. Oh, come on, you're pulling it over my eyes. You want money. Green backs, that's what you want. She says, no, that's paper. I just want green. You see the problem? How do you give her a present that's nothing but green? You can't wrap green in a box because it doesn't exist as something in its own right. See what I mean? However, between the bread that was there and the body of Christ that is there, there's this in common. They each exist in their own right. They are each substances. They each subsist. Okay? But the body of our Lord subsists in a most unusual way. It subsists with the very subsistence of the Son of God. Mm -hmm. That's why we worship his body. It's not a human body that's somehow remotely attached to him. It is his own body. It subsists with his personal identity. That's why we worship it. Okay. So Protestant preachers, don't tell me I worship a piece of toast. I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what his body is, deserves. Right? And so does the Eucharist, therefore, deserve that. So in our Lord's case, we have this wonderful way of making a substance out of his body, a substance inseparable from God. And in the Eucharist, something similar is happening. What it takes to be a being in its own right is what remains in the Eucharist. The body of Christ comes to be in the Eucharist, yeah. But what is the body of Christ? It's the material side of our Lord's own personal identity. And that's why we worship it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, Dr. Marshall, can you comment briefly on the Eastern Church's understanding of the Eucharist? and how that differs from the sort of scholastic view of the Western Church? Um, the ways in which they differ are just not relevant to my topic. Last week, I went through quote after quote from Eastern Church Fathers showing how they anticipated the idea of transubstantiation. So there's no difference between East and West on that issue. For both East and West, ancient and modern church, it's an issue of a real change, okay? Uh, the, the differences lie elsewhere in aspects of the sacramental signification of things.
Dr. Marshner, we have a, an interesting question coming online from Jim, um, asking, as Christ possesses the full and complete nature of God, as does the Father and the Holy Spirit, when we receive the Eucharist, is there some sense in which we are receiving the Father and the Holy Spirit as well? Also, is it correct to say that transubstanti transubstantiation is a form of incarnation? Um, no, it's not a form of incarnation because he's already incarnate in his human body, which was glorified in the resurrection and which he took with him to heaven. So it's not another incarnation. Uh, talk like Suarez. <laughs> It's a, it's a replication, it's a reproduction, it's a Xerox, but not another incarnation. Okay, uh, what else? Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, in a sense, and I want to throw out a technical term for you, in the Eucharist you do receive the other divine persons by concomitance. The Son is present in his divinity. And his divinity includes, or is um, inseparable from that of the, of the Father and the Holy Spirit. So just as when the Holy Spirit uh, indwells your soul, the Father and the Son come with him. So also in this case, in receiving the Eucharist with our Lord's divinity, you also include the other, receive the other persons of the Trinity. But that's by concomitance. That's not by a direct relationship. The direct relationship is with our Lord's body. And our Lord is the only person of the Trinity who has or ever shall have a body. Dr. Marshall, you're mentioning how many of the scholastics um, talked about the importance of the words of institution. Can you comment upon the uh, liturgy of Ada and Mari where there are no words of institution? All right, um, I don't really care to comment on it because I think that there was a deliberate omission as part of the ancient discipline of keeping the secrets. I have a hunch that the canon of Adi and so on as it stands is incomplete, but I cannot prove that. And if I'm wrong, well then you just have to find it somewhere in there implicitly. And I'm happy to second the works of implicity seekers, but I'm not one of them. I sometimes get the question of, about the whole, uh, Last Supper. How can Christ be there present with his apostles and yet sit, say, this is my body? Um, well, the fact that he is there with his disciples, who can see his natural body, uh, underscores the mysterious nature of his words. He makes an ostension, look at this, and then an identification of what he's showing them. He says, this is my body. And they have to think, huh, has he changed it? Uh, or is he fibbing to us? Now, if the sacrament of truth does not contain fibs, then he must have changed what was there before into his body, but his body under these sacramental signs. There's no contradiction between his natural body and his body under those sacramental signs. It is, uh, if you will, the same body, but in different modes of being. Thank you. This was a wonderful lecture, but very dense, actually. <laughs> And I believe your last sentence was, the Eucharist is the material side of Christ's own person. Did I get that right? Well, material, I thought, I, I think this probably launches into, it shows my ignorance. Material sounds like it would be the body and blood, but not the soul and divinity. Are. Can you explain what that really material side? The bread and wine are not changed into our Lord's soul or divinity. Our Lord's soul and divinity come with his body. What we have here is a conversion of one material substance into another. So there's a certain kinship there. You can't, um, you can't go further than that.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.